This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alan Quatermain by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 9 Into the Unknown A week had passed, and we all sat at supper one night in the mission dining room, feeling very much depressed in spirits, for the reason that we were going to say good-bye to our kind friend, the Mackenzies, and depart upon our way at dawn on the morrow. Nothing more had been seen or heard of the Maasai, and save for a spear or two which had been overlooked and was rusting in the grass, and a few empty cartridges where we had stood outside the wall, it would have been difficult to tell that the old cattle corral at the foot of the slope had been the scene of so desperate a struggle. Mackenzie was, thanks chiefly to his being so temperate a man, rapidly recovering from his wound, and could get about on a pair of crutches, and as for the other wounded men, one had died of gangrene, the rest were in a fair way to recovery. Mr. Mackenzie's caravan of men had also returned from the coast, so that the station was now amply garrisoned. Under these circumstances, we concluded, warm and pressing as were the invitations for us to stay, that it was time to move on, first to Mount Kenya, and thence into the unknown in search of the mysterious white race which we had set our hearts on discovering. This time we were going to progress by means of the humble but useful donkey, of which we had collected no less than a dozen, to carry our goods and chattels, and if necessary ourselves. We had now but two aquafis left for servants, and found it quite impossible to get other natives to venture with us into the unknown parts we proposed to explore, and small blame to them. After all, as Mr. Mackenzie said, it was odd that three men, each of whom possessed many of those things that are supposed to make life worth living, health, sufficient means, and position, etc., should from their own pleasure start out upon a wild goose chase from which the chances were they would never return. But then that is what Englishmen are, adventurers to the backbone. In all our magnificent muster-roll of colonies, each of which will in time become a great nation, testify to the extraordinary value of the spirit of adventure, which at first sight looks like a mild form of lunacy. Adventurer, he that goes out to meet whatever may come. Well, that is what we all do in the world one way or another. And speaking for myself, I am proud of the title, because it implies a brave heart and a trust in providence. Besides, when many and many a noted Croesus, at whose feet the people worship, and many and many a time-serving and word-coining politician are forgotten, the names of those grand-hearted old adventurers who have made England what she is, 
will be remembered and taught with love and pride to little children whose unshaped spirits yet slumber in the womb of centuries to be. Not that we three can expect to be numbered with such as these, yet have we done something, enough, perhaps, to throw a garment over the nakedness of our folly. That evening, whilst we were sitting on the veranda, smoking a pipe before turning in, who should come up to us but Alphonse, and with a magnificent bow, announced his wish for an interview. Being requested to fire away, he explained at some length that he was anxious to attach himself to our party, a statement that astonished me not a little, knowing what a coward the little man was. The reason, however, soon appeared. Mr. Mackenzie was going down to the coast, and thence on to England. Now, if he went down country, Alphonse was persuaded that he would be seized, extradited, sent to France, and to penal servitude. This was the idea that haunted him, as King Charles's head haunted Mr. Dick, and he brooded over it till his imagination exaggerated the danger ten times. As a matter of fact, the probability is that his offense against the laws of his country had long ago been forgotten, and that he would have been allowed to pass unmolested anywhere except in France. But he could not be got to see this. Constitutional coward as the little man was, he infinitely preferred to face the certain hardships and great risks and dangers of such an expedition as ours than to expose himself, notwithstanding his intense longing for his native land, to the possible scrutiny of a police officer, which is, after all, only another exemplification of the truth that, to the majority of men, a far-off foreseen danger, however shadowy, is much more terrible than the most serious present emergency. After listening to what he had to say, we consulted among ourselves, and finally agreed, with Mr. Mackenzie's knowledge and consent, to accept his offer. To begin with, we were very short-handed, and Alphonse was a quick, active fellow who could turn his hand to anything. And cook! Ah, he could cook! I believe that he would have made a palatable dish of those gators of his heroic grandfather which he was so fond of talking about. Then he was a good-tempered little man, and merry as a monkey, while his pompous, vainglorious talk was a source of infinite amusement to us. And what is more, he never bore malice. Of course, his being so pronounced a coward was a great drawback to him but now that we knew his weakness, we could more or less guard against it. So after warning him of the undoubted risks he was exposing himself to, we told him that we would accept his offer on condition that he would promise implicit obedience to our orders. We also promised to give him wages at the rate of ten pounds a month should he ever return to a civilized country to receive them. To all of this he agreed with alacrity, and retired to write a letter to his Annette, which Mr. Mackenzie promised to post when he got down country. He read it to us afterwards, Sir Henry translating, 
and a wonderful composition it was. I am sure the depth of his devotion and the narration of his sufferings in a barbarous country, far, far from thee, Annette, for whose adored sake I endure such sorrow, ought to have touched the feelings of the stoniest-hearted chambermaid. Well, the morrow came, and by seven o'clock the donkeys were all loaded, and the time of parting was at hand. It was a melancholy business, especially saying good-bye to dear little Flossie. She and I were great friends, and often used to have talks together. But her nerves had never got over the shock of that awful night when she lay in the power of those bloodthirsty Maasai. "'Oh, Mr. Quatermain,' she cried, throwing her arms round my neck and bursting into tears. "'I can't bear to say good-bye to you. "'I wonder when we shall meet again.' "'I don't know, my dear little girl,' I said. "'I am at one end of life, and you are at the other. "'I have but a short time before me at best, "'and most things lie in the past.' but I hope that for you there are many long and happy years, and everything lies in the future. By and by you will grow into a beautiful woman, Flossie, and all this wild life will be like a far-off dream to you. But I hope, even if we never do meet again, that you will think of your old friend and remember what I say to you now. Always try to be good, my dear and to do what is right rather than what happens to be pleasant. For in the end, whatever sneering people may say, what is good and what is happy are the same. Be unselfish, and whenever you can, give a helping hand to others. For the world is full of suffering, my dear, and to alleviate it is the noblest end that we can set before us. If you do that, you will become a sweet and God-fearing woman, and make many people's lives a little brighter, and then you will not have lived, as so many of your sex do, in vain. And now I have given you a lot of old-fashioned advice, and so I'm going to give you something to sweeten it with. You see this little piece of paper? It is what is called a check. When we are gone, give it to your father with this note. Not before, mind. You will marry one day, my dear little Flossie and it is to buy you a wedding present which you are to wear, and your daughter after you, if you have one, in remembrance of Hunter Quatermain. Poor little Flossie cried very much, and gave me a lock of her bright hair in return, which I still have. The check I gave her was for a thousand pounds, which being now well off, and having no calls upon me except those of charity, I could well afford. And in the note, I directed her father to invest it for her in government security, and when she married or came of age, to buy her the best diamond necklace he could get for the money and accumulated interest. I chose diamonds because I think that now that King Solomon's mines are lost to the world, their price will never be much lower than it is at present, so that if in after life she should ever be in pecuniary difficulties, she will be able to turn them into money. Well, at last we got off, after much handshaking, hat-waving, and also farewell saluting from the natives, Alphonse weeping copiously, for he has a warm heart, 
at parting with his master and mistress, and I was not sorry for it at all, for I hate those goodbyes. Perhaps the most affecting thing of all was to witness Umslopogaas's distress at parting with Flossie, for whom the grim old warrior had conceived a strong affection. He used to say that she was as sweet to see as the only star on a dark night, and was never tired of loudly congratulating himself on having killed the Lagunani who had threatened to murder her. And that was the last we saw of the pleasant mission house, a true oasis in the desert, and of European civilization. But I often think of the Mackenzies, and wonder how they got down country, and if they are now safe and well in England, and will ever see these words. Dear little Flossie, I wonder how she fares there, where there are no black folk to do her imperious bidding, and no sky-piercing snow-clad Kenya for her to look at when she gets up in the morning. And so good-bye to Flossie. After leaving the mission house, we made our way, comparatively unmolested, past the base of Mount Kenya, which the Maasai called Donyo Eger, or the Speckled Mountain, on account of the black patches of rock that appear upon its mighty spire, where the sides are too precipitous to allow of the snow lying on them. Then on past the lonely Lake Baringo, where one of our two remaining Ascari, having unfortunately trodden on a puff adder, died of snake bite in spite of all our efforts to save him. Thence we proceeded a distance of about a hundred and fifty miles to another magnificent snow-clad mountain called Lukakasera, which has never, to the best of my belief, been visited before by a European, but which I cannot now stop to describe. There we rested a fortnight, and then started out into the trackless and uninhabited forest of a vast district called Elkumi. In this forest alone there are more elephants than I ever met with or heard of before. The mighty mammals literally swarm there, entirely unmolested by man, and only kept down by the natural law that prevents any animals increasing beyond the capacity of the country they inhabit to support them. Needless to say, however, we did not shoot many of them, first because we could not afford to waste ammunition, of which our stock was getting perilously low, a donkey loaded with it having been swept away in fording a flooded river, and secondly because we could not carry away the ivory and did not wish to kill for the mere sake of slaughter. So we let the great beasts be, only shooting one or two in self-protection. In this district, the elephants, being unacquainted with the hunter and his tender mercies, would allow one to walk up to within twenty yards of them in the open, while they stood, with their great ears cocked for all the world like puzzled and gigantic puppy dogs, and stared at that new and extraordinary phenomenon, man. Occasionally, when the inspection did not prove satisfactory, the staring ended in a trumpet and a charge, but this did not often happen. When it did, we had to use our rifles. Nor were elephants the only wild beasts in the great Elkumi forest. 
All sorts of large game abounded, including lions, confound them. I have always hated the sight of a lion since one bit my leg and lamed me for life. As a consequence, another thing that abounded was the dreadful setsi fly, whose bite is death to domestic animals. Donkeys have, together with man, hitherto been supposed to enjoy a peculiar immunity from its attacks. But all I have to say, whether it was on account of their poor condition, or because the setsi in those parts is more poisonous than usual, I do not know, but ours succumbed to its onslaught. Fortunately, however, that was not till two months or so after the bites had been inflicted, when suddenly after a two days cold rain they all died, and on removing the skins of several of them I found the long yellow streaks upon the flesh which are characteristic of death from bites from the tzitzi, marking the spot where the insect had inserted his proboscis. On emerging from the great Elkumi forest, we, still steering northwards, in accordance with the information Mr. Mackenzie had collected from the unfortunate wanderer who reached him only to die so tragically, struck the base in due course of the large lake called Laga by the natives, which is about fifty miles long by twenty broad, and of which it may be remembered he made mention. Thence we pushed on nearly a month's journey over great rolling uplands, something like those in the Transvaal, but diversified by patches of bush country. All this time we were continually ascending, at the rate of about one hundred feet every ten miles. Indeed, the country was on a slope which appeared to terminate at a mass of snow-tipped mountains, for which we were steering, and where we learnt the second lake of which the wanderer had spoken as the lake without a bottom was situated. At length we arrived there, and having ascertained that there was a large lake on top of the mountains, ascended three thousand feet more till we came to a precipitous cliff, or edge, to find a great sheet of water some twenty miles square, lying fifteen hundred feet below us, and evidently occupying an extinct volcanic crater, or craters, of vast extent. Perceiving villages on the border of this lake, we descended with great difficulty through forests of pine trees, which now clothed the precipitous sides of the crater, and were well received by the people, a simple, unwarlike folk, who had never seen or even heard of a white man before, and treated us with great reverence and kindness, supplying us with as much food and milk as we could eat and drink. This wonderful and beautiful lake lay, according to our aneroid, at a height of no less than 11,450 feet above sea level, and its climate was quite cold and not at all unlike that of England. Indeed, for the first three days of our stay there, we saw little or nothing of the scenery on account of an unmistakable Scotch mist which prevailed. It was this rain that set the tzetzi poison working in our remaining donkeys, so that they all died. This disaster left us in a very awkward position, as we had now no means of transport whatever, though on the other hand we had not much to carry. 
Ammunition, too, was very short, amounting to but 150 rounds of rifle cartridges and some 50 shotgun cartridges. How to get on, we did not know. Indeed, it seemed to us that we had about reached the end of our tether. Even if we had been inclined to abandon the object of our search, which, shadow as it was, was by no means the case, it was ridiculous to think of forcing our way back some several hundred miles to the coast in our present plight. So we came to the conclusion that the only thing to be done was to stop where we were, the natives being so well disposed and food plentiful, for the present, and abide events, and try to collect information as to the countries beyond. Accordingly, having purchased a capital log canoe, large enough to hold us all and our baggage, from the headman of the village we were staying in, presenting him with three empty coal-drawn brass cartridges by way of payment, with which he was perfectly delighted, we set out to make a tour of the lake in order to find the most favorable place to make a camp. As we did not know if we should return to this village, we put all our gear into the canoe, and also a quarter of cooked water-buck, which when young is delicious eating, and off we set natives having already gone before us in light canoes to warn the inhabitants of the other villages of our approach. As we were puddling leisurely along, Good remarked upon the extraordinary deep blue color of the water, and said that he understood from the natives, who were great fishermen, fish, indeed, being their principal food, that the lake was supposed to be wonderfully deep and to have a hole at the bottom through which the water escaped and put out some great fire that was raging below. I pointed out to him that what he had heard was probably a legend arising from a tradition among the people which dated back to the time when one of the extinct parasitic volcanic cones was in activity. We saw several round the borders of the lake, which had no doubt been working at a period long subsequent to the volcanic death of the central crater, which now formed the bed of the lake itself. When it finally became extinct, the people would imagine that the water from the lake had run down and put out the big fire below, more especially as, though it was constantly fed by streams running from the snow-tipped peaks about, there was no visible exit to it. The farther shore of the lake we found, on approaching it, to consist of a vast perpendicular wall of rock, which held the water without any intermediate sloping bank as elsewhere. Accordingly, we paddled parallel with this precipice, at a distance of about a hundred paces from it, shaping our course for the end of the lake where we knew there was a large village. As we went, we began to pass a considerable accumulation of floating rushes, weeds, boughs of trees, and other rubbish, brought, good supposed, to this spot by some current, which he was much puzzled to account for. While we were speculating about this, Sir Henry pointed out a flock of large white swans, which were feeding on the drift some little way ahead of us. Now I had already noticed swans flying about this lake, and having never come across them before in Africa, was exceedingly anxious to obtain a specimen. 
I had questioned the natives about them, and learnt that they came from over the mountain, always arriving at certain periods of the year in the early morning, when it was very easy to catch them on account of their exhausted condition. I also asked them what country they came from, when they shrugged their shoulders and said that on top of the great black precipice was stony, inhospitable land, and beyond that were mountains with snow and full of wild beasts where no people lived, and beyond the mountains were hundreds of miles of dense thorn forest, so thick that even the elephants could not get through it, much less men. Next I asked them if they had ever heard of white people like ourselves living on the farther side of the mountains and the thorn forest, whereat they laughed. But afterwards a very old woman came and told me that when she was a little girl her grandfather had told her that in his youth his grandfather had crossed the desert and the mountains and pierced the thorn forest and seen a white people who lived in stone corrals beyond. Of course, as this took the tale back some 250 years, the information was very indefinite, but still there it was again. And on thinking it over, I grew firmly convinced that there was some truth in all these rumors, and equally firmly determined to solve the mystery. Little did I guess in what an almost miraculous way my desire was to be gratified. Well, we set to work to stalk the swans, which kept drawing as they fed, nearer and nearer to the precipice. And at last we pushed the canoe under shelter of a patch of drift within forty yards of them. Sir Henry had the shotgun loaded with number one, and waiting for a chance, got two in a line, and firing at their necks killed them both. Up rose the rest, thirty or more of them with a mighty splashing, and as they did so he gave them the other barrel. Down came one fellow with a broken wing, and I saw the leg of another drop and a few feathers start out of his back, but he went on quite strong. Up went the swans, circling ever higher till at last they were mere specks, level with the top of the frowning precipice, when I saw them form into a triangle and head off for the unknown northeast. Meanwhile, we had picked up our two dead ones, and beautiful birds they were, weighing not less than about thirty pounds each, and were chasing the winged one, which had scrambled over a mass of driftweed into a pool of clear water beyond. Finding a difficulty in forcing the canoe through the rubble, I told our only remaining Wakwafi servant, whom I knew to be an excellent swimmer, to jump over, dive under the drift, and catch him knowing that as there were no crocodiles in this lake, he could come to no harm. Entering into the fun of the thing, the man obeyed, and was soon dodging about after the winged swan in fine style, getting gradually nearer to the rock wall against which the water washed as he did so. Presently he gave up swimming after the swan, and began to cry out that he was being carried away, and indeed we saw that, though he was swimming with all his strength towards us, he was being drawn slowly to the precipice. With a few desperate strokes of our paddles, we pushed the canoe through the crust of drift and rowed towards the man as hard as we could, but fast as we went, he was drawn faster to the rock.
Suddenly I saw that before us, just rising eighteen inches or so above the surface of the lake, was what looked like the top of the arch of a submerged cave or railway tunnel. Evidently, from the watermark on the rock several feet above it, it was generally entirely submerged, but there had been a dry season, and the cold had prevented the snow from melting as freely as usual, so the lake was low and the arch showed. Towards this arch our poor servant was being sucked with frightful rapidity. He was not more than ten fathoms from it, and we were about twenty when I saw it, and with little help from us the canoe flew along after him. He struggled bravely, and I thought that we should have saved him, when suddenly I perceived an expression of despair come upon his face, and there before our eyes he was sucked down into the cruel swirling blue depths and vanished. At the same moment I felt our canoe seized as with a mighty hand, and propelled with resistless force towards the rock. We realized our danger now, and rode, or rather paddled, furiously in our attempt to get out of the vortex. In vain. In another second we were flying straight for the arch like an arrow, and I thought that we were lost. Luckily I retained sufficient presence of mind to shout out, instantly setting the example by throwing myself into the bottom of the canoe. Down on your faces, down! And the others had the sense to take the hint. In another instant there was a grinding noise, and the boat was pushed down till the water began to trickle over the sides, and I thought that we were gone. But no, suddenly the grinding ceased and we could again feel the canoe flying along. I turned my head a little, I dared not lift it, and looked up. By the feeble light that yet reached the canoe, I could make out that a dense arch of rock hung just over our heads, and that was all. In another minute I could not even see as much as that, for the faint light had merged into shadow, and the shadows had been swallowed up in darkness utter and complete. For an hour or so we lay there, not daring to lift our heads, for fear lest the brains should be dashed out of them, and scarcely able to speak even, on account of the noise of the rushing water which drowned our voices. Not indeed that we had much inclination to speak, seeing that we were overwhelmed by the awfulness of our position, and the imminent fear of instant death either by being dashed against the sides of the cavern, or on a rock, or being sucked down in the raging waters, or perhaps asphyxiated by want of air. All of these and many other modes of death presented themselves to my imagination as I lay at the bottom of the canoe, listening to the swirl of the hurrying waters which ran whither we knew not. One only other sound could I hear, and that was Alphonse's intermittent howl of terror coming from the center of the canoe, and even that seemed faint and unnatural. Indeed, the whole thing overpowered my brain, and I began to believe that I was the victim of some ghastly spirit-shaking nightmare. End of chapter 9